Now and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay with us for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is April the 2nd. Yes, April is the cruelest month. Give or take a few weeks in late October. Today, I think I'm going to tell you about one of my literary saints, Emily Dickinson. When I was... Young, uh, well, a teenager, I guess. There was one line I, uh, I didn't really understand Emily Dickinson then, but I came across one line that got me through, uh, oh, let's see, the death of my mother and a few other things. Uh, I remember writing it and putting it, uh, over my typewriter for a while. The line was, It might be lonelier without the loneliness. What did Emily Dickinson mean when she wrote, My life had stood a loaded gun. (laughs) The thought rhymes of Emily Dickinson have been my zen cones for Oh, 50 years, maybe more. Yes, more. I come back to Dickinson at Easter in search of a resurrection, a little rebirthing. April means the plunge back into poetry. You know, down, down, <laughs> into the, oh, into the uh, bottom of consciousness, go back into the erotic Okay, it's the time that we come alive once more, you know, revive the emotions. These days when fear, fear of feeling is everywhere, uh, it's getting harder than ever for most people to let go of rational order, you know, to just sing and dance and... (laughs) Let let go, yes, let go of control. Get out there and dance in the moonlight the way our mothers did. And some of our fathers, too, yes. You can't make poetry out of thought. Poetry is passion. Linear thought 
you know, the thought that leads to death, linear thought must be seduced by wild mind, you know, by the fires of ecstasy. Dickinson was uh, Delphic in her songs. She made the mind music uh, just listening to the grass grow. She writes, yes, witchcraft is wiser than we. Wow, that's just it. No need to say more. Yes, conventional Christianity <laughs> uh, was kind of grim at uh, uh, in Amherst. Uh, her time, the 19th century, uh, pretty, pretty pretty stuffy, you know, uh, and conventional Christianity, not her cup of tea. She writes, I do not respect doctrines. They, she talked about her family, they are religious except me. They address an eclipse every morning whom they call their father. <laughs> anyway, uh, she goes on to uh, to talk about uh, uh, George Eliot. She wrote that her business was circumference. I would say that today the poet's business is synthesis. Uh, anyway, she she read George Eliot's novel Middlemarch, and she was convinced that the mysteries of human nature surpass the mysteries of redemption. There we go. Yes, uh, never mind the biblical. Go right to the human condition. Emily was searching for the ineffable. She writes, Impossibility like wine exhilarates the man who tastes it. Possibility is flavorless. Here's how Gertrude Stein put it. If a thing can be done, why do it? <laughs> For both these poets, consciousness is to the soul as syllable is to sense. These women, they could be sensual and cerebral in the same sentence. They know the gun is loaded. They know that thought and feeling are not separate that mind and body are part of the same package. In 1870, Emily Dickinson wrote, quote, If I read a book, and if it makes my whole body so cold, no fire ever can warm me, I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off. I know that is poetry. Emily spoke of her ecstasy in living. Uh, one of her great loves <laughs> was uh, the wife of her brother, Austin, uh, Susan Gilbert, yes. In 1856, uh, Austin married Susan Gilbert, and they set up house next door, uh, back and forth, yes, all their lives. 
running back and forth. Emily's fierce, intense relationship with Susan is detailed in almost all the biographies. Uh, I still think the best biography uh, is by Richard B. Sewell. That one came out in 1974. It's the fattest one. I just like to use it because it's inclusive. Uh, he writes about Emily's quarrels with Susan, especially on the subject of religion. Ah, uh, yes, I can imagine what it was like. She writes uh, in a letter to Susan, she writes, uh, And though in that last day, the Jesus Christ you love, remark he does not know me, there is a darker spirit will not disown its child. Well, she's really associating herself with with the dark side. Yes. Uh, where was Emily coming from? She writes, I see New england Yes, her New England was the Amherst Academy and the Mount Holyoke Female Seminary. Uh, for some reason, she became very low in health. Uh, she withdrew living always in her great brick house, staying within its grounds, ever deeper, ever deeper into her solitude. If the doorbell rang, she told her friend, Thomas Higginson, she said, if the doorbell rang, uh, she says, men come and they say, what, what to me? <laughs> she restricted the number of questioners, visitors. Higginson found her father to be, quote, thin, dry, and speechless. Here's what Emily writes about her father in 1862. She writes, My father only reads on Sunday. He reads lonely and rigorous books. I have a brother and sister. That was Lavinia, born in 1833, her sister. <laughs> yes, always she had Lavinia to depend on. Lavinia burned all her letters when when she died. Uh, Emily goes on to write, My mother does not care for thought. And father, too busy with his briefs to notice what we do, he buys me many books, but begs me not to read them, because he fears they joggle the mind. When her father died in June of 1874, Emily writes, Though it is many nights, my mind never comes home. A year later, her mother became an invalid, suffered paralysis until she died in 1882. No, that would be... No, that's not the right date. Um... I think, yes, I think it was not too long after her father died, her mom died. Uh, she writes, we were never intimate. Mother and children, while she was our mother, when she became our child, then affection came. Oh boy, these Victorian Americans, uh, I think they have a lot to teach us, uh, all the things we don't have, especially their 
closeness with death, she did have what I call uh, is it, uh, a unique life. Uh, nowadays, everyone knows an awful lot about the people around them. That was not so in Emily's time. She had celestial evenings by blazing wood fires and music and rampant fun and feastings, but most of all she had solitude, what she calls that polar privacy, a soul admitted to itself. She didn't abuse her leisure. <laughs> she was uh, a good housekeeper. She baked and gardened and attended to her sewing and knitting. And she wrote hundreds of letters. I find the letters as fascinating as the poems. Uh, she played the piano. She even walked with her dog, Carlo. She writes, large as myself, that my father bought me. Right, a dog big as herself. I wonder if that's the one <laughs> in the poem. You remember the poem? I'm not sure. Uh, I remember each line, the one, yes, I wakened early. I don't think it's wakened. Something about I wakened early anyway, took my dog and visited the sea. The mermaids in the basement came out to look at me. There's another uh, book about Emily called Mermaids in the Basement. Uh, she fled from the kind of distractions that most of us enjoy. I mean, conventional society. She's trying to develop her imagination, her sixth sense. Now, a mystic living among orthodox religious institutions and structured belief systems in Massachusetts in the 19th century needed to be alone. Emily's niece writes, Once I repeated to Aunt Emily what a neighbor had said, that time must pass very slowly for her, who never went anywhere. She flashed back with Browning's line, Time, why time was all, all I wanted. Let's face it, Emily knew who she could talk to. She writes, the soul selects her own society, then shuts the door. The poet's tragedy, if it is a tragedy, is to love alone. Emily wrote, till it has loved, no man or woman can become itself. Like Emily Bronte across the sea in Yorkshire. She's a solo act. But she has the angst of an existentialist. Now, a poet who can't be heard in the world must go deep into herself. Uh, some people think that it would have been better if she had been uh, matriculating. I don't think so, no. That was for Walt Whitman. Uh, she writes, this is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. Her poems are iconoclastic, but the world had no use for her voice. Not then, not till later. Uh, there were many detractors from, uh, let's see, there were a few poems published, you know. One of the worst of her detractors says, uh, here, yes, in the Boston Christian Register, he writes, that the poem, her poem, is one of the most offensive bits of contemptuous Unitarianism that I have met with. In the poem, Emily compared Christ's coming on earth in behalf of the Father 
with John Alden's service on behalf of Miles Standish in the Longfellow poem. <laughs> Emily, yes, Emily is so sardonic. She writes, God is a distant, stately lover. As I was saying, among Emily's earthly loves, her sister-in-law Susan seems to be the, the, the most interesting. She's certainly the most sadistic and selfish. Uh, there was her brother Austin's middle-aged love. His, his middle age, yes, Austin was uh, unhappy and he found a woman called Mabel Loomis Todd. She seems to be the one most sympathetic to Emily's life and work. She helped to publish the poems. Second series of the poems in 1891, I think, yes. One of the first readers was Alice James, the sister of Henry and William James. Uh, she writes in her diary of 1892, quote, It is reassuring to hear the English pronouncement that Emily Dickinson is fifth-rate. They have such a capacity for missing quality. The robust evades them equally with the subtle. Mabel Todd was herself beginning to write in order to escape the confines of her role in Amherst. She wrote in her journal that editing Emily's poems had a wonderful effect on her mentally and spiritually. She said the poems open a door into a wider universe. Uh, she says it's bigger than the little sphere surrounding me, which often hurts and compresses me. Uh, she says they help get her through a very difficult time. The sadness of the poems, the helplessness sometimes, she said, was so much bitterer than mine that she says, I was helped as if a kingdom cared. Mabel had to convince Thomas Higginson, uh, one of Emily's mentors, uh, she had to convince him that the poems were not too crude for publication, so he told her to classify them, A, B, and C, right. <laughs> Virginia Woolf would say, get out that measuring rod. He said he would look them over once classified. Her prefaces to the poems compare them to impressionistic painting, to Wagner's music. She discovered a strange cadence, inner rhythms, the spiritual smoke, that recalls William Blake. Uh, Mabel even discovered Emily's humor, especially in relation to her sister Lavinia, a woman who lived much of the time in what Emily called, quote, the state of regret. I see Emily at Easter time when the calla lilies are in bloom, humoring Lavinia then retreating to the garden of her own mind. She writes, The brain is wider than the sky. It is deeper than the sea. And finally, it is just the weight of God. She writes of God's foreplay in the poem which begins, He fumbles at your soul 
as players at the keys before they drop full music on. Then she goes right on to imagine the celestial orgasm itself. One imperial thunderbolt that scalps your naked soul. A seer can be burdened by sensibility as well as illuminated. Emily's fatal illness, Bright's disease, was described by her doctors as a revenge of the nerves. She knew no drug for consciousness can be. That's what she wrote. No drug for consciousness can be. She had to get there by herself and sober. She had to get there with her own psyche, and sometimes I think she made it up. I won't tell. She writes, To see is perhaps never quite the sorcery that it is to surmise, though the obligation to enchantment is always binding. What Emily did was go through the doors of perception to find her heaven and hell right. She went into the frame of night. She writes, You remember? My ideal cat. It has always a huge rat in its mouth, just going out of sight. Though going out of sight in itself has a peculiar charm. It is true that the unknown is the largest need of the intellect, though for that no one thinks to thank God. Emily struggled, struggled with mutability. Uh, well, with death, I guess, the 19th century was the great time for mutability in poetry. Uh, Yes, uh, it's all about Eros and Thanatos, the poet's bedfellows. She writes, By a departing light we see acuter quite than by a wick that stays. Her brother Austin's little son Gilbert died, and after that Emily's uh, health did not recover and... Uh, Let's see. At this time, right, here's something from M Mabel Todd. Yes, she writes about Emily. Uh, she writes, I used to sing to Emily frequently in the long, lonely drawing room, but she never came in to listen. She only sat outside in the darksome hall on the stairs, but she heard every note. When I had finished... She always sent me in a glass of wine on a silver salver, and with it, either a piece of cake or a rose, together with a poem, the latter usually impromptu, evidently written on the spot. I wish there were some greater honors to pay such a wise woman, such a, as I say, literary saint, 
Something more than just saying that she resurrects my spirits each April. She dusts me off. Yes. <laughs> Let's go dust the graves, I say to myself. Uh, just in time for the spring solstice. These days I know that the voice of the subversive is heard in the land. One more time. We can come forth. We can celebrate. Because we, too, are part of the unknown. The time that is to come. The mystery that Emily was seeking. She writes, If I shouldn't be alive when the robins come, give the one in red cravat a memorial crumb. That's an essay that I wrote some time back on uh, Emily Dickinson. Uh, I added to it a bit here and there, but uh, I think I'll try to do one poet every Tuesday, one woman poet. Stick to the women writers, my uh, my gods, my uh, saints. Uh, if you're interested, the April the 1st New Yorker has an article on Margaret Fuller. Uh, she was the first female public intellectual. <laughs> Margaret Fuller, let's see. She is one of my favorite people because, unfortunately, she didn't have a nice life. She had a perfectly lousy life, but she was the one who was out there. Kind of shows you what might have happened to Emily. Uh, Margaret Fuller hung out with uh, all those transcendentalists, you know, like Emerson. And, and they weren't altogether nice to her. Uh, the fact that she could argue with them and uh, find a way in the world, I guess, is what marked her. The poor woman drowned. Uh, let's see, when was it? It was... Uh, Mm, about the middle of the last century, I think, yes. She was coming home from Europe. She had found an Italian lover. They had a baby. Both she and the baby drowned when the ship, it was only, uh, what is it, a few hundred yards from the shore, right here in our country. And uh, the captain escaped, most of the crew. <laughs> she was last seen on deck with her hair streaming in the rain. The mast fell and crushed her. Okay, Margaret Fuller. They cobbled together some biographies right away, but uh, there's some new ones now. That's what the New Yorker is trying to give you here. Let's see, Margaret Fuller, A New American Life. Um, there are a bunch here, yes. Uh, the Women Who Ignited the American Romanticism. Anyway, if you find the April the 1st issue of The New Yorker, uh, you can find the article on Margaret Fuller. She uh, was hoping, of course, for a utopian marriage of equals, the way Mary Wollstonecraft had, you know, uh, at the end of the 18th century. Uh, she idolized George Sand. Uh, <laughs> Nathaniel Hawthorne was really rude. Here's what he says. 
after she's died, <laughs> he says, well, it's after all kind. Yes, Providence, he says, is kind in putting her and her clownish husband and their child on board that fated ship. <laughs> there you see, Emily stayed home. Margaret Fuller went out into the great world. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back next Tuesday at this same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. From the ones who walk in light, light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadows out of For a Better Environment invites you to our fifth annual Love Your Mama Earth Day, a two-day event beginning Friday, April 19th at 4 p.m. East Oakland children will perform the Lorex at Acorn and Encompass Elementary Schools located at 1025 81st Avenue. This event continues on Saturday, April 20th at 10 a.m. with cleanup, greenup actions where teams will plant trees, flowers, and clean up trash. This event begins with breakfast at the Tassaparanga Youth Farm, 975 85th Avenue. This event is wheelchair accessible and is a benefit for communities for a better environment. Sliding scale fee, $1 to $5. For more information, call 510-302-0430, extension 21.